Hello and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Good evening. And this week, no one is joining me via the miracle of satellite technology because I am flying solo. Uh, my erstwhile co-host, Ed Davis, is swanning around New York as I speak uh, as he has tickets to go and see some musical or other. I think uh, Hamlet, is it called? I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, as I'm on my own this week, I thought I would try something a little different. Uh, Regular listeners will know that Ed and myself are hugely enamoured with a podcast called You Must Remember This, hosted by Karina Longworth. If you've not heard it, get the fuck on it. It's staggeringly well made. Um, And it's a show that delves pretty deep into Hollywood history and uh, mythology, I guess, uh, to spin these incredible true stories that you either didn't know or thought you knew. There's uh, multi-part episodes on things like Howard Hughes uh, and the Manson family um, and a whole bunch of incredibly uh, fascinating su- subjects like uh, Bogey and Bacall, Bette Davis and Joan Crawford. It's a pretty special show. There's, I think, 70 or 80 odd episodes by this point, um, but you can go all the way back and start at number one. It's a good place um, to begin. Uh, I think it's the first one is the Frank Sinatra episode, which is... Uh, about his kind of little-known concept album that he recorded kind of towards the end of his recording career, which is pretty goddamn weird. Um, But yeah, anyway, myself and Ed are big fans, and I thought that given that I have complete control over this episode, um, which essentially kind of makes me drunk with power, um, that I'd kind of do my own version of that show. You Must Remember This is billed as a podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Now, this is going to be a podcast dedicated to exploring an unusual, scarcely believable story from Hollywood's second century. This is the story of a film that was never made. This is the story of Gladiator 2. Welcome to You Won't Remember This. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife. And I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Ridley Scott's 2000 Sword and Sandals Spectacular Gladiator was huge. It was everywhere. It was a sizable commercial hit, raking in more than $450 million worldwide. It won five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Actor, and it resurrected the long-dead historical epic as a viable genre, paving the way for films like Troy, Alexander, 300, and Scott's own Kingdom of Heaven, as well as TV shows like HBO's Rome and Spartacus. And the impact of Gladiator wasn't just limited to film and television – with the film's success sparking a renewed interest in Roman history and classical studies as a whole. If any further proof was needed that Gladiator was a genuine cultural phenomenon, Rodney Trotter dresses up as Russell Crowe's character Maximus in an episode of Only Falls and Horses. If that's not the apex of the pop culture pyramid, I don't know what is. 
Gladiator was a huge success by every conceivable measure, and this being Hollywood, it was only a matter of time that the studio would want to double down and sequelize. It's worth noting that although the first Lord of the Rings film, uh, which also owes a huge debt to Gladiator, and the first Harry Potter were only a year away, this was only 2000, and just before Hollywood shifted gears into full franchise-building mode. Now, a decade and a half on, it seems like the studios would have had a franchise at least partially mapped out somehow. With the sounds of the cash registers ringing not yet faded, the studios behind the film, DreamWorks and Universal, would want to make their move and get a sequel into production as soon as humanly possible. But there's the slightly awkward matter of, and here is your spoiler warning if you've somehow not seen Gladiator, Russell Crowe's Maximus, the hero, dies at the film's conclusion. Not only does he die, but his story is complete. His foe, played with scenery-devouring relish by Joaquin Phoenix, is vanquished, and his wife and son avenged. There are no loose ends, no tantalising plot threads that could be worked into another story, no secondary characters that survive that could step up and shoulder the weight of a separate film. Even if Maximus hadn't died, they couldn't pull a diehard and just have the same shit happen to the same guy twice. A Roman general isn't going to flee the army, be sold into slavery, and become a famous gladiator to avenge his dead family a second time around. I mean, that's just straight up unrealistic. But work on a sequel did begin. In 2001, one of the first film's screenwriters, David Franzoni, had started work on a follow-up. Franzoni initially began work on a prequel, which would be the most obvious way to get around the Maximus being dead problem, that said, the idea was soon discarded. We know from interviews with Franzoni that Russell Crowe was deep into researching the Roman belief in the afterlife in an attempt to find an angle to work Maximus back into the story and approach it in that way. But this idea too was, was also discarded. Franzoni eventually moved from writing to production detail and another of the original film's screenwriting team, John Logan, who would go on to write The Aviator, Hugo and Skyfall, among others, came on board. Logan changed the direction of the film to be a more conventional sequel, set 20 years after the original, focusing on the character of Lucius. I mean, you know Lucius, right? Played by Spencer Treat Clark in the 2000 film? The fatherless son of Connie Nielsen's Lucilla? No, me neither. The sequel would have followed the now adult Lucius and his quest to discover the identity of his real father, that bastard's deadbeat dad, would be revealed to be none other than our Maximus, because, of course it would. Ridley Scott seemed fairly happy with this new direction, but confirmed in an interview given in 2003 that Crow would not be returning for a second go-around. He also confirmed the new film's shift of direction away from the Colosseum, saying, It's the next generation. Roman history is so exotic that any part of it is really fascinating. History is far more exotic than anything you can ever dream up. He continues, I wouldn't touch the gladiatorial side again. We have to go to the next step. More politics and Praetorians. The parts that are interesting, which always lead to conflict. But this version never came to fruition. Scott had a hugely ambitious project set during the Crusades that he could probably only make fresh in the wake of Gladiator's success. I mean, if we stop to look at Scott's 90s output, we can see he only made four films in the entire decade. And Thelma and Louise excluded, it was patchy and sporadic, symptomatic of a director struggling to find a groove. With a bona fide hit under his belt, Scott wasn't going to let this opportunity pass, and post-Gladiator he began a prolific burst 
eventually seeing him make nine films in as many years. His Crusades project, eventually filmed in 2005 as Kingdom of Heaven, may well have taken care of any unfinished business he had with the big budget historical epic. But still the idea of sequelising Gladiator never really went away. On the film's 2005 extended edition DVD re-release, producer Walter Parks is interviewed describing a version of a potential sequel in the mould of Godfather 2, which famously got around not having its predecessor's lead, Marlon Brando. This potential new Gladiator film would tell both stories of Maximus and Lucius, hopping back and forwards through time, telling a generational story. This idea DreamWorks and Universal were keen on. Godfather 2 turned out to be okay, right? But still, the film stalled. In 2006, Scott seemed to have finally put the idea of a Gladiator sequel to bed. He said in an interview, We tried. Russell didn't want to let it go, obviously, because it worked very well. I think he enjoyed doing it, and I think it was one of those things that he thought, well, maybe there's a sequel where we can adjust the fantasy and bring him back from the dead. We were all having a go. DreamWorks were having a go, so we were having a go. DreamWorks was addressing Rome without Maximus because clearly he's gone and he's dead. Therefore, it would be the son of Maximus that had probably been left behind with his affair with Lucilla. You're then basing a film on a different kind of premise. Again, you're basing it on a corrupt Rome, the Rome that would be heading to its own demise. It would be far more rambling and complex. Often great plays are very simple, and I think that the mechanics of the Gladiator story were really very satisfactory and worked very well. But that same year, it still wasn't officially dead. Almost as if to give it one last shot, Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe kind of had one last throw of the dice. They abandoned the script ideas of the previous five years and started again. To pen the new script, they approached someone perhaps no one expected. Someone who had only written one film script at the time. Someone who wasn't even really a screenwriter at all. Someone whose outlook and sensibilities could not be described as being in line with big-budget Hollywood action ideals. That someone was Nick Cave. Principally a musician, Cave had written a few collections of poems and lyrics and a, a novel before completing his first film script, The Proposition, which was directed by John Hillcote. At the time of Scott and Crowe's approach to write the Gladiator sequel, this one film was the extent of his screenwriting experience. It's a low-budget, incredibly bleak and violent outback pseudo-western, with little in common with big-budget studio pictures. In a risk-averse business and a potential cash cow property on the line, Cave didn't seem like an obvious choice. Didn't even seem like a left-field choice. But so what? History is littered with examples of writers knocking out great scripts at the first attempt. Sylvester Stallone had never written anything before Rocky. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon went straight to success and Oscar glory with Goodwill Hunting. Charlie Kaufman's first script was Being John Malkovich. So why does it matter? In fact, why am I even telling you this story? The answer is pretty simple. It's because the script that Cave wrote, that he actually submitted to the studio, is by any objective measure... Absolutely fucking batshit bananas. A dense blanket of rain descends on a vast, sodden wilderness. 
Two thieves dressed in rags, hair plastered to their faces, run through the deluge. One holds up a wooden staff in his hand. They puff and pant. Occasionally, they stop and point through the impenetrable rain, then trudge on. Eventually, they stop. Thief one looks up into the rain. Thief two looks down at the ground below. Close up of Maximus, lying, arms splayed in the mud, unconscious. Rain hammers down. He wears his gladiatorial breastplate and his sword rests in his lifeless hand. The two thieves, like buzzards, swoop down upon him. The two thieves strip Maximus of his breastplate. Thief one puts on the breastplate and roars with toothless laughter. He brandishes his staff. Ah, the mighty gladiator. Take up your sword, you dog. Thief two picks up Maximus's sword. Dog, <laughs> I passion your mother's milk. Prepare to die. The two thieves cackle with laughter, then mock fight over the lifeless body of Maximus. Thief two stops suddenly, stands rigid for a moment, his face full of stupid surprise. I'm hit. Thief two wavers, drops the sword, then falls flat on his face in the mud. A spear hangs out of his back. Thief one, still wearing the breastplate, turns and flees across the muddied expanse, disappearing into the rain. Maximus, with a great sucking of breath, rears suddenly up, his eyes wide with horror. He looks about him. He tries to stand, but is too weak. He sees a figure moving mysteriously towards him through the rain. Mordecai, forty years old, reaches Maximus. He stands over him. He gestures at the dead thief. Another poor wretch dispatched to oblivion. Again, Maximus tries to stand, but cannot. Mordecai squats down beside him. Take it slow, my friend. Maximus looks around, bewildered, as if waking from a dream. What place is this? That is a good question. Maximus reaches out in panic, grabs Mordecai roughly by the collar and pulls him close. I asked you. What place is this? Mordecai detaches himself from Maximus's grip. At first you will be disorientated and confused, and indeed a little vexed. It is to be expected. But direct your anger elsewhere. I am a friend. Let me help you stand. Mordecai helps Maximus to his feet. Who are you? Mordecai wraps his hands around the spear that sticks out of the dead thief's back. Me? My name is Mordecai. Mordecai places his foot on the dead thief's back for leverage, and with a grunt pulls free the spear. I keep the peace. Mordecai turns his back on Maximus and begins to move away. He stops. He turns to Maximus. Well, come on. Follow me. Mordecai trudges off through the rain. Maximus picks up his sword, then, unsteady and drained, follows. And so begins Nick Cave's Gladiator 2 script. As we've just heard, Maximus lives. Or does he? Well, he's just woken up in a bleak, desolate, rain-drenched wasteland. Or as we call it, Manchester. I jest. It's the afterlife, but not heaven or Elysium, as the Romans called it. Kind of a limbo. The figure who rescues him, Mordecai, is a ghostly spirit guide that helps Maximus make sense of what makes no sense. However, Mordecai is no basal exposition. 
where a straight explanation would be super handy, Mordecai speaks in riddles and nonsense, explaining everything with nothing. Scene 3. Exterior. Rock ledge shelter. Maximus and Mordecai sit under the shelter of a ledge jutting from a rock face at the foot of a rise. Rain hammers down. Mordecai shouts to be heard above the rain. He hands Maximus some bread, some meat. Eat! You will be hungry. Maximus takes the food and eats ravenously. Mordecai hands Maximus a bladder of wine. Rough as dog's guts. But the best you'll find around here. Maximus drinks greedily. I've been waiting for you. Maximus stops eating. He looks at Mordecai. For me? I do not know you. But I know you, Maximus. I saw you fight, just yesterday, in the Colosseum. The Colosseum? I saw you slay the Emperor. Maximus leans back heavily against a rock. He closes his eyes. He opens them. I was there, but I was not there. I cheered, but no one heard me. Speak plainly. I saw you fall. Maximus closes his eyes. Mordecai leans closer to Maximus. I saw you die. The bladder of wine falls from Maximus' hand. No time for riddles. Mordecai takes a shirt from his bag, folds it and places it behind Maximus's head. Oh, you have time, my friend. Mordecai stands, looks out at the wilderness and the relentless rain. You have an eternity. I mean, would it kill you to be a bit clearer, mate? Anyway, the script opens in this rainy hellscape with Maximus struggling to decipher what the fuck is happening. Mordecai, as little use as he is, leads him to an encampment of the damned, which appears to house thousands of purgatorial souls. Scene 7, exterior, the encampment. Maximus stands at the top of the hill and looks down through the rain in horror. Below them on a vast plateau, a multitude of people are camped by the edge of a flat black sea, a massive refugee camp that stretches on endlessly. Fires burn amongst the improvised shelters and thousands of people sit forlorn and hopeless in their squalor. A fog hangs lifelessly over the dark, motionless water of the sea. Maximus stares down. What unholy place is this? This, my friend, is a dumping ground for the inconsequential, the unnamed, the insignificant. I suspect there are many such places as these. It was not always so, well, impossible. Maximus moves off in the direction of the encampment. Mordecai follows. Once the powers were strong, there was order, a reckoning, a passing from one place to another, but not anymore. Something unheard is happening here. The order is shifting the scales have been tipped. But what name does it go by? It has no name. It does not need one. The wretched beings appear to be waiting for something that will never come. What are they hanging on for? What are they searching for? Who are they? 
A boat is seen on the sea but disappears as the inhabitants of the encampment launch into the water and try and flag it down. Confused by this great commotion, and understandably so, Maximus demands some answers. Mordecai, not willing to provide those answers, directs him instead to a ruined temple further up the hill. Inside, Maximus meets some fallen gods. Scene 11. Interior. Ruined temple. Maximus enters the dim confines of the temple. Rain leaks through the broken stonework and runs down the walls. A large torch wheel hangs from the ceiling on a chain and it swings and creaks. Seven dissolute old men, Jupiter, Apollo, Pluto, Neptune, Mars, Mercury and Bacchus, cluster around a makeshift table. Their heads crane towards each other as they mumble amongst themselves. Maximus stands before them. The old men grow silent. They look ill and diseased. The torch wheel creaks. Jupiter, fat, eyes boiled and bloodshot, sits in the centre. He looks at Maximus and pushes the other old men away. Give me room! The old men sit upright, tottering drunkenly on their seats. Jupiter leans forward and throws open his arms. Behold, the mighty gladiator, in all his thundering apparel. Maximus asks these gods, gods as they are, I guess, to help him find his wife and son. They are pretty sketchy on the helping finding the wife and son business, but they do ask him to head out into the desert to find one of their gods who has gone rogue. His name is Hephaestus, and the gods in the temple want Maximus to do him in. Maximus obviously agrees, pretty much just on the off chance it might curry favour with them later on down the line. Outside the temple, Mordecai actually finally reveals something useful, in that Maximus' son is actually alive, despite having been murdered along with Maximus' wife in the first film by a bunch of Roman soldiers. It is explained that Maximus' wife came to the gods in the temple and made a deal her place in Elysium in exchange for their son returning to Rome alive and well. The gods apparently agreed for some reason. I'm not sure what that would be. But despite warning him against traipsing through the desert in search of Hephaestus, Maximus ignores Mordecai and sets off on his mission anyway. There then begins a few kind of aimless scenes of Maximus wandering about. It's hot and there's nothing much to do, you know, it being a desert and everything. He stops and makes camp one night, where his dreams turn to his dead wife, Maria. Scene 16. Exterior. The desert. Darkness descends. Maximus sits by a large, weird, blackthorn thicket. He has lit a small fire. There is a deathly, oppressive stillness. He hears strange, half-human, half-animal noises. He lies down and tries to sleep. In a dream, a figure walks forward, shimmering in the heat. The figure collects its form as it draws closer. It is a woman. It is Maximus's wife, Maria. Help us, Maximus. She moves closer. Help us. Maximus rears up from his sleep. It is morning. He looks around him. Maximus hears the voice again, and he leaps to his feet. Help us, Maximus. Maximus looks around in panic. He hears a movement in the thicket, turns and sees a dark, fleeting shape. Help us, Maximus. Maximus follows the voice, skirting the edge of the thicket. He hears a crashing in the brambles and a strangulated moan. Maximus sees the shape again, tears at the brambles and finds a great stag, its horns entangled in the thicket. Help us. 
The stag looks at Maximus with its spooked rolling eyes. Its head is torn by the brambles, its forehead speckled in bright blood. It opens its mouth soundlessly. Maximus draws his sword and begins to hack at the brambles. The deer bucks and kicks. Maximus continues to chop. The stag panics, and its eyes roll white. It releases a terrible moan. The stag chokes itself to death in thicket and dies. Maximus draws back, his arm and chest torn by the briar, his sword limp at his side. The voice of his wife disappeared. Scene 19. Exterior. The desert. Maximus trudges through the desert. The terrain has become rockier. The sun beats down. Maximus sees five people wearing pagan masks, squatting on boulders. They are naked, but for their masks. The leader stands. He wears the horns of the stag, the skin thrown over his back. They watch Maximus as he passes. He continues on, growing weak, the unholy sun hammering down. So, his wife is the deer? I don't know, but, I mean, watching a stag choke itself to death in a bush uh, is, like I said, not really in line uh, with the ideals of Hollywood action cinema. Um, it's pretty fucking dark. Then followed by a scene with a bunch of pagans wearing said possibly wife's skin on their heads, um, and you're getting an idea of the feel of this script. After passing out in the desert, Maximus then just stumbles by chance across a hut where Hephaestus lives, purely by accident. Inside he finds an emaciated, dying wretch of a former god banging on about how now there is only one god, and that's the way that humans are going to go with it in the future. Um, there's no place for the Roman multiple gods. He reveals the whereabouts of Maximus's son and warns him that he is in grave danger. Up to this point, yeah, this script's been pretty strange, but it's set in the afterlife. Weird shit is going to happen. Um, but the scene between Maximus and Hephaestus in the hut ends like this. I must find my wife and my son. Yes, your son is in grave danger. He stands before a great storm. In his hand, the nub of truth. My son, what are you talking about? We are all in such terrible and grave danger. Where is he? What do you mean? Hephaestus reaches out and with his skeletal claw grabs Maximus and pulls him close. Hephaestus stares into Maximus's eyes, clutching at his rough cross. Come, I will show you. Hephaestus arches his body suddenly, stretches back his neck and opens his mouth soundlessly. Scene 22, exterior, town square, Leon. Maximus rises out of the body of a dying Christian. The Christian is arched backwards, mouth open in a terrible scream, a sword thrust downward deep in his chest. All about him, Christians are being massacred by a mob of civilians and guards. Some kneel, some attempt to flee, as they are clubbed and hacked to death by a frenzied mob. Bodies twist and shudder and spurt blood on the ground of the town square. The air is full of screams and pain and prayer. Maximus looks about him in horror. He sees at the centre of the mayhem an old man, Polyinthus, kneeling in the dirt, petitioning the heavens in prayer. He holds a wooden cross. Christians try to protect him and are slain in the process. So we're now in 
France, and Maximus has just popped out of the body of a dying Christian that has been killed in a massacre. Uh, the scene continues to reveal that leading the massacre is what appears to be the baddie of Gladiator 2, Lucius. Remember Lucius from the original film? Sure you do. Played by Spencer Treat Clark, the fatherless son of Connie Nielsen's Lucia. Yeah, that's him. He recognises Maximus, but can't quite place him. He orders his guards to kill him, but perhaps somewhat underestimating the now immortal, once-dead Roman general-turned-superstar gladiator, Maximus fucks him up rude-style and does one. Turns out that one of the targets of the massacre, the man who was kneeling, Polyinthus, was the Bishop of Lyon. The Christians decide to send word of the massacre back to their leader in Rome, a schoolteacher by the name of Cassian. They need to warn him that Lucius is on a Christian-killing rampage. When Maximus asks the men why no one at the massacre defended themselves or fought back, the Christians explain that they are a peaceful people, hoping to spread their message through non-violence, and they have faith in a better world beyond this one. Maximus' response to this is, Your faith is misplaced. In the morning he rides to Rome, although he first discovers another group of Christians who have been slaughtered by Lucius and his men. At this point, Mordecai turns back up and explains that by re-entering the real world, the gods Maximus made the deal with have now been angered and some bad shit is going to go down. He also reveals that Maximus' son is now a grown man and 20 odd years have passed. Further up the road to Rome, Maximus happens upon a plague village and then the upturned cart of an animal merchant, who's pretty upset because his rhinoceros is dying and his lions are in bad shape. That said, Maximus doesn't stop to help. In Rome, we meet Cassian, who is a schoolteacher. He is lecturing a group of students, one of which is Maximus's grown-up son, Marius. Cassian is teaching Roman doctrine, so he must obviously be keeping his Christian side on the down-low. As the lesson wraps up, we meet Sardis, a student in the Draco Malfoy mould who clearly hates both Cassian and Marius. In a somewhat unexpected turn, we hear Marius calling Cassian his father. A brief scene reveals the two have received news of Lucius' return and his Christian slaying antics in France. This concerns them greatly. Maximus arrives in Rome. Despite being an incredibly famous Roman, he thinks he can go incognito and checks into a local inn. The song being sung by an old drunk is pure cave. It's over, love. Look at me pushing 50 now. Hair like grave grass, growing in both ears. The piles and boggy prostate. The crooked penis. The sour taste of each day's first lie. <laughs> Piles, boggy prostate, crooked penis. Like I said, not in line with Hollywood action cinema. Maximus starts asking after Cassian. The innkeeper, somewhat unsurprisingly, swears he recognises Maximus, who assures him he is mistaken. Then we zoom out a little, moving away from Maximus and his story, and get a little broader, get an idea of what's going on in Rome politically. This is where, through a scene with Lucius, we meet... Emperor Decius. Scene 42. Interior. Quarters of the Emperor Decius. Evening. The Emperor Decius sits at a table. On the table is a shallow basket. In the basket is a silk cushion. And on the cushion 
lies a tiny spider monkey. Theseus sops a small piece of bread in a bowl of milk and tries to feed the monkey. The spider monkey is not well. He does this with great concentration. Lucius enters Decius's chamber. He moves through the room and stands before Decius. Sire? Decius sops another piece of bread in the milk. Ah, Lucius. You have returned. Yes, sire, you sent for me? Decius continues to tend to the monkey. Indeed, I did. You must be worn out from all your vigorous activity. I have only this evening arrived. Reports have come back from Leon that uh, concern me somewhat, Lucius. I believe my instructions were that you arrest the leaders and bring them back to Rome. It would appear your methods were uh, somewhat overzealous. My interpretation of your orders, sire, was that you wished the Christian movement quelled. This I did. Decius looks up for the first time. Your interpretation of my orders? I hear you painted the streets of Leon in their blood. Decius examines Lucius. Lucius stands tall. Still, Leon is Leon, and Rome is Rome. The monkey lets out a little squeak. Decius looks back down and strokes the monkey's head. Look at this poor thing. It is blind and near to death. May I speak plainly, sire? He barely breathes. Sire, the gods are vexed. With my monkey? The countryside is devastated. Plague, famine, earthquakes, the great granaries of Rome destroyed by inundations. Hard is the anger of the gods. I do not need to be told the condition of my empire. These Christians, these atheists, mock the empire and the divinity of the gods, sire. They are disrupting the order of things. They must be put away. Your words, Lucius, are like a cracked bell. They ring untrue. Sire? I fear it is more... personal. A knot of muscle works in Lucius's jaw, and his pale eyes narrow. Your dear mother, Lucille, did she not have certain sympathies with these people? Lucius, stung, stiffens. Decius strokes the monkey's head. I fear for the Empire, sire. Decius looks up at Lucius and leans back in his chair. Hear me, Lucius. As I am sure you're aware, I have posted an edict to the citizens of Rome. Each Roman family will be ordered to make a sacrifice under law to the gods. The Jews, of course, will be exempt. These uh, Christians believe this sacrifice to be an affront to their so-called god. They will not participate in the ritual. They fear some kind of eternal damnation. This edict will effectively expose the Christians. A census will be taken and a list drawn up. Citizens not on the list will be tried according to the law. They will be offered a chance to recant. Those who do not will be put to death in the Colosseum. Thus, Lucius, the gods will be appeased. 
the laws will be upheld and the people entertained. Theseus moves forward and once again looks down at the monkey. After all, is it not as if these Christians are a warring faction? Is it not as if they have risen up against us? Not yet, sire. But their beliefs strike at the very heart of all that is Rome. Beliefs? And what are your beliefs, Lucius? Lucius stands tall and nods towards the basket. I believe, sire, that your monkey is dead. It is so hard to read that scene and uh, keep a straight face. I mean, what's with the monkey? I mean, it's one thing giving characters and actors a bit of business uh, in the scene so they're not just kind of stood talking, but the stuff with the monkey is so kind of like hyper-specific that you just have to keep asking yourself, what's with the monkey? I mean, this scene is very important. It establishes quite a few things. The edict that Decius mentions is a very important plot device for the entire script. The power relationships are quite clearly defined here. There's a wider kind of geopolitical sense you get going on of like where the power lies in Rome. But the whole thing is undermined by literal monkey business. You'd be sat there the whole time thinking, what's with this fucking monkey? I mean, we've all seen The Godfather, the, the amazing scene in, in the kind of the start of the film where Brando's kind of playing with this cat and it's it's kind of an awesome kind of character moment, this, this fearsome uh, kind of overbearing patriarch who's kind of being gentle with this tiny kitten and you know, the, the, the story is that he, the cat was just on set and he just picked it up and played with it. And it's this kind of this incredible character moment. This, this kind of terrifying gangster being so gentle and playful. It's a kind of a juxtaposition that jars, but it's also telling. In this instance, you're just thinking, what's with the fucking monkey? Maximus then meets up with Cassian to tell the Christians they are in grave danger. At the meeting, he comes face to face with his son Marius. Marius is dismayed that a Roman soldier, even a former one, has been admitted to their secret meeting and demands he leave. Mordecai turns up to imply that Hephaestus sent Maximus back to Earth to trigger a Christian uprising on the sly. In another exchange, Maximus and Cassian talk about Marius. Cassian reveals that Marius is his adopted son and questions Maximus's faith and motivation. Shortly after this scene, we get a returning character from the original film, Juba, the slave played to Oscar nomination standards by Jimon Hounsou. They greet each other like old friends and get tanked up. It's established that Juba is the local blacksmith now, married and blissfully happy with his wife and newfound status of great respect in the community. I can't see anything at all going wrong and disrupting this equilibrium, especially not that gladiator he used to know returning from the dead for unspecified reasons. Juba then shows the two wooden figures of Maximus's wife and child that he buried in the first film's climax. He dug them up. I don't know why, but that was nice of him. On the other side of town, Lucius is torturing Christians to get the name of their leader in Rome. Literally the first couple he tortures gives Cassian up. Mordecai turns up to tell Maximus that his son is beginning to warm to him. Then, because this is a gladiator film, remember, 
we head to the Colosseum where preparations are underway for a great festival of violence in the name of entertainment. Here we find Lucius and Decius talking in Decius's menagerie. Scene 56, exterior, Decius's private zoo, Rome, day. Decius stands in the muddy surrounds of his private zoo. About him are cages of monkeys, a few lions, an antelope, a couple of hyenas. There is a pen with a chained elephant. The zoo is dismal and grim, and the beasts look disconsolate and ill-tended. Decius appears distressed. Two workers tie a large tarpaulin onto a cart. Lucius walks towards Decius. Through the steaming mud, the sun beats down. I need to speak with you, sire. Decius, his face pale and spooked, turns towards Lucius. The portents, Lucius. The portents. Sire? Decius turns back to look at the workers at the cart. This is not a good day. Lucius moves closer to Decius. I have the leader's name. Leader? Which leader? The leader of the Christian movement in Rome. He is a schoolteacher named Cassian. Do you think the gods are angry, Lucius? Do you think the gods are angry... with me? The two workers begin to pull the cart, moving it through the mud. Decius and Lucius observe it as it approaches. I see a great cataclysm moving towards us. I think we must act now, and with conviction. The two workers pull the cart past Decius and Lucius. We see the hoofed legs of a giraffe sticking out from under the tarpaulin. Decius looks on mournfully. Look. Last night. The thunderstorm. Sire? My giraffe was struck by lightning. My giraffe was struck by lightning. Yeah. Across town, Lucius busts into Cassian's classroom and interrogates him in front of the students. He then stabs him in the neck with a pen, having just revealed his true identity, at which point a whole bunch of other students, led by Draco Malfoy, stab him with their pens. It's a grisly scene, especially since Marius is there watching the whole affair, catatonic. He escapes, but Lucius's guards seize him. Maximus then shows up and fucks up the guards. The two men then ride into the country where there's a farm Christians have been using as a safe house. On the other side of Rome, at the Colosseum, the games begin. Scene 69, exterior, the Colosseum, Rome, midday. The Colosseum teems with people. The people scream and cheer and shout at the carnage they witness in the arena. The grounds of the arena have been flooded and in four foot of water a naval battle ensues. The water roils with 100 alligators that have been released in the water. Gladiators fire arrows, throw spears, launch fireballs as the two vessels approach one another. Christians kneel on the deck, hands clasped in prayer. Some Christians, impaled on spears and arrows, fall from the vessel and are torn apart by the alligators. Decius and his retinue watch the proceedings with blood-hungry delight. Decius rises to his feet and cheers as a fireball explodes on the deck of one of the vessels. Lucius makes his way through the retinue towards Decius. Decius sees Lucius and beckons him over. A roar goes up as the two vessels collide and gladiators leap from one vessel to the other, hacking and thrusting with their spears. Finally, some Colosseum action. And this actually happened too in Rome. They did actually fill 
the arenas with water and have sea battles and have like alligators and shit in them, which is kind of awesome and would have been quite the spectacle on film. Uh, in the exchange of dialogue between Lucius and Decius, uh, we find out that there's a Christian uprising going down, and this is really killing Decius's buzz, you know, with the ships and the alligators and all. There's no real reason this scene had to take place against such a preposterous backdrop, but, you know, we've not had a big effect scene and we're on page 80, so... Outside Rome, a Christian force is beginning to gather. Maximus is convincing them to fight back against their oppressors. Juba later joins them with weapons from his smiths, and together they begin to train the army. Whilst in Rome, the edict begins. The Romans storm the houses of all the Christians, only to find them empty. They then find out they have all fucked off to the farm on the edge of town. They gather their forces and head there. The Christians number only 200. The Romans have more than double that, plus more in reserve. Can a ragtag bunch of basically pacifist hippies with a few hours of combat training overturn those odds? Hmm, let's see. On arrival, the Romans find no one, and the film's climax kicks into gear. I'd just like to thank everyone for listening to this episode, and really, if you've stayed with it to this point, well done. Because it's now about to get really fucking strange. We're just going to read through the script, the last three pages of the script, without interjection from me. Brace yourselves. Scene 88, exterior, rise and plain near woods, late morning. The army stands along the rise, looking out over the plain at the large woods. In the distance, Lucius on horseback rides slowly along the front of the ranks, surveying the troops. Lucius takes up position at the front of the amassed army. He looks down at the plain before him and at the woods. He draws his sword. Lucius and the Roman army surge forth, down the rise and across the plain. There is a great and spectacular thundering of horses as they go. Scene 89, exterior, the woods late morning. Lucius leads an army as they gallop across the plain. The army enters the woods on horseback. They continue into the woods. Lucius holds up his hand and the army thunders to a halt. All is eerie and still. Light filters through the trees. The horses snort. Lucius swings around in his saddle, looking in all directions. Christians stand suddenly and fire arrows. Many soldiers are hit as they are ambushed by the Christians. Soldiers fall from their horses. General Mayhem. Lucius and his army dismount and a bloody ground battle ensues. Christians die. Soldiers die. Maximus ploughs into the soldiers, sword flying. Juba drags soldiers from their horses and slaughters them. There is a long and terrifying ground battle. Juba is overpowered by three soldiers who bear down on him. Maximus sees this and throws his sword and kills a soldier before he can deliver the death blow. Juba stands. Lucius appears behind him and cuts Juba's throat. Juba falls to the ground and dies. Maximus runs for Lucius. Lucius sees Maximus coming and mounts his horse. Lucius charges off through the woods. Maximus mounts a horse and charges after him. Marius sees this and mounts his horse. The trees whip past. In a clearing, Lucius's Stalin stumbles and Lucius is thrown from his horse. Maximus dismounts. Lucius stands. Lucius unsheathes his sword. Maximus, sword drawn, approaches Lucius. They fight. It is a long and bitter battle. Maximus wounds Lucius in the arm. Lucius holds his arm and drops his sword, stares into Maximus's face. Maximus raises his sword to deliver the death blow. Ah, only at your hands, Maximus. An arrow flies through the air and sticks through Lucius's neck. Maximus turns to see Marius standing there with a bow in his hand. Lucius staggers, his face full of surprise. Lucius dies. Marius lets the bow fall from his hand. He is covered in blood. 
Marius looks about him, at the butchered corpses of Christians and soldiers alike. Marius looks up to the heavens, clouds rumble across. Marius's face is a mask of anguish and regret. Oh Lord, what have we done? Marius drops to his knees. What have we done? James runs into the clearing covered in blood, pumped up from the fight. They are retreating! They will be back! Marius, still kneeling, looks at Maximus. Maximus looks at Marius. What do we do now? Maximus and Marius continue to look at each other. Do we regroup and we fight? James turns and heads back into the woods. Maximus and Marius remain in the clearing. They look at one another. All is still. There is a cracking of undergrowth and a stag crashes into the clearing. Three arrows stick out of its neck, one out of its side. It moves unsteadily into the clearing. It stretches back its neck and bellows mournfully. Maximus watches the stag. Maximus kneels down, picks up some earth and rubs it into his hands. Close up of Maximus's hands as he rubs dirt into them. Scene 90. Exterior. Battlefield. Middle East. Day. Maximus stands. He is dressed in chainmail and covered in a white uniform with a red cross on it. He holds a sword in his hand. He is surrounded by hundreds of crusaders in similar attire. He looks up and an army of Muslims descend upon them. Their war cries are ferocious. They fight a horrific battle. Maximus remains untouched. Scene 92. Exterior. The woods. Rome. Late morning. The stag, shot with arrows, stumbles and drops to its knees. Scene 93. Exterior. Another battlefield. Europe. Close up of Maximus's hands as he rubs snow into them. Maximus stands in the middle of another battle, more modern, in a field of blood and death and snow. Scene 94. Exterior. The woods. Rome. Late morning. The stag falls onto its side. It moans. Scene 95. Exterior. Another battlefield. Europe. Maximus stands in the middle of another battlefield. Armoured tanks bear down. Automatic weapons. Maximus fights. Soldiers fall around him. Scene 96. Exterior. The woods. Rome. Late morning. The stag's dying eye rolls into its head. Scene 97. Another battle. Vietnam. Day. Maximus stands. Jungle. Carnage. Choppers. Flamethrowers. Scene 98. Exterior, the woods, Rome, late morning, close up of the stag's mouth, agape, lowing horribly. Scene 99. Interior, bathroom, Pentagon, Washington, close up of Maximus rubbing a cake of soap between his hands under a steaming tap. Maximus looks up. He is in a clean, sterile men's room. He washes his hands in a basin. The basin is one of three in a row. As he does so, he stares into the mirror above the basin. Maximus looks at himself for a long time. He stares deep into his reflected eyes. He is dressed in a crisp black suit and wears a tie. He continues to look at himself. He turns off the tap. He dries his hands on a towel. He looks back into the mirror. Mordecai is standing behind him. Ah, Mordecai. Yes, Maximus. Until eternity itself has said its prayers. Maximus adjusts his tie. He moves out of the bathroom, leaving Mordecai behind. Scene 100. Hallway. Pentagon. Day. Maximus walks down a hallway under neon lights. He passes a secretary who carries an armful of documents. He opens a door. Scene 101. Interior. Room. Pentagon. Washington. Maximus enters the room. There is a large circular table. Ten men in suits sit around the table. They each have a laptop open in front of them. There is a bank of screens along one wall. Maximus sits down at the table in a black, high-backed leather chair. Excuse me, gentlemen. Maximus looks at his laptop. Then he looks up at the other men. Now, 
Wait, wait, wait. And that is how Nick Cave's script for Gladiator 2 ends. I am fine with you guys just taking a second to kind of let it sink in, but for those of you who still can't quite grasp what's happened, yeah, in the climactic scenes between the Romans and the Christians, we kind of cross-cut with Maximus in ancient Rome uh, to Maximus's journey through time and through a kind of human history of violence and conflict, the Crusades, an unnamed medieval battle, World War Two, Vietnam, and being a current-day political operative in the Pentagon. Now, it's easy to see why DreamWorks passed on this script. In a recent interview with Mark Maron on the WTF podcast, this script is briefly mentioned, and Nick Cave says that Russell Crowe didn't like it, and the studio didn't like it, and I'm kind of not really surprised, because it's pretty nuts, and it's kind of out there. He called it a popcorn dropper, uh, which is pretty accurate, because at that point you would be kind of gaping open-mouthed at the screen, uh, whilst your uh, concessions went all over the floor, it's an incredibly strange thing for someone to, someone to have written um, with the brief of writing a sequel to Gladiator. Cave also revealed that his preferred title for this script was Christ Killer, which is a little on the nose, I guess, um, and also might have made it a little unpalatable to certain markets. It should be said that this script has no revision notes on it, no draft numbers. The script itself is riddled with spelling errors and uh, repetitions of uh, action. There's there's a moment where Lucius is said to have a, a kind of a muscle working a knot in his jaw while his pale eyes narrow. That's used about three times in the script. Um, you kind of get the impression that there was only one draft, which is... Not surprising, they wouldn't have gone back to him and said, well, some of it works, uh, some of it doesn't, and, you know, set him about rewriting it. It was a truly unusual and kind of bizarre thing to do to turn that in. But it says quite a lot about Hollywood and how Hollywood works, in that, you know, Nick Cave wouldn't have just done that for fun, even though he states in an interview that he did enjoy writing it. He would have been paid by the studio to do that and... He seems to have just done it in an evening uh, with uh, a bottle of red wine and uh, I'm going to probably suggest some recreational drugs. Um, and you know, that's kind of decadent in a way. Did he give a shit about the script? Did he know that they were never going to use it? He seems to suggest in interviews that he's given that he knew that you know it was uh, out on a limb, I guess, that for them to ask him. And... The film was never really ever going to be made, so fuck it. Why not? Why not kind of rub Hollywood's face in their own decadence? Hmm. Is that one Nick Cave was doing? I'm not so sure. The only thing I can be sure of is this might be one of the weirdest scripts I've ever read. Uh, it's certainly kind of a freeform kind of narrative Nothing from earlier scenes seems to be called back. Like the the afterlife stuff, apart from Mordecai, who turns up 
essentially to kind of explain the plot, but the plot that is explained doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. The characters are just kind of thrown there for, for plot purposes. It it seems like it seems like Nick Cave was taking the piss. But you know, is that fair? If someone gave you a, a stack of money and said write a sequel to a film that no one's really ever going to realistically make, that no one really cares about, what would you do? Would you just go by the numbers and write something much the same as the first film with cosmetic differences? Or would you smoke a bowl, retreat to your shed, and crank out a work of true madness? And that, I think, is what Nick Cave has done here. Thank you, everyone, for indulging me on this a uh, fairly indulgent journey through a fairly indulgent script. I'd just like to throw out a big thank you to everyone who helped me. Uh, Gemily Thornton was the disembodied voice of Maria. She did a spooky job, I'm sure you'll agree. And all other voices were provided by the preposterously talented Nick Bowden, uh, who I sent the script to, sent some rough directions to, and he banged it out in an hour. And hats off to you, sir. That is a masterwork of hammery. That's your lot for this special episode, guys. Uh, Thanks, as always, for listening and for your patience. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, please leave us a little review. You can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook too. We'll be back next week when normal programming will resume, I promise. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And, well, it's just goodbye from me, I guess.